0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in today's podcast, I'll be talking to our Middle East analyst Michael Johnson about the astonishing developments of the weekend in Saudi Arabia, where the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has acted with devastating speed and ruthlessness to consolidate his position as the anointed successor to the 81-year-old King Salman. But first, to the all too familiar tale of a gun massacre in the United States. This time it's the turn of Sutherland Springs, a small town in rural Texas, to take its place among the inventory of place names that have become synonymous with such atrocities. On Sunday, a 26-year-old man, armed with a semi-automatic weapon, opened fire on the congregation attending the morning service at the town's First Baptist Church. He killed 26 people, including 14 children. Our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, joins me now from Sutherland Springs. Suzanne, can you bring us up to date first on the the police investigation into the attack on Sunday? We know the killer, Devin Kelly, he died himself after the attack of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Do we know any more at this stage about the motivation for for this attack?
1: Um, Well, about 24 hours after the event, uh, police authorities here in Texas confirmed that there had been a domestic dispute that led up to this event. Um, Devin Kelly had an altercation of some sort with his in-laws, and had sent threatening texts to his mother-in-law, uh, so that suggested some kind of motive on this. Um, the, his in-laws did attend this church uh, at some point, as did his wife, it seems. Uh, but were not in attendance at the day on the day he, he launched the attack. Although there were reports that they arrived soon after. Um, but his uh, wife's grandmother, his mother-in-law's mother, was in attendance, and it looked like she was uh, one of the victims who died at the scene when Devin Kelly um, launched this, this attack.
0: Now, we know um, that he was dishonourably discharged from the US Air Force in 2014 after he was convicted of assaulting his wife, his, his previous wife and, and child. It now transpires that the Air Force didn't share this information, the fact of his conviction with other authorities, and that, that's very significant, isn't it?
1: Yes, and um, the US Air Force confirmed that they did not, through a clerical error it seems, did not inform um, the the database, the federal database, and the National Criminal Information Center database uh, about um, Mr. Kelly's conviction for domestic abuse, and also a second issue that he was discharged. Uh, he was court-martialed and discharged from the military. This happened back in 2012. Um, he was indicted for assaulting his then wife and their stepson. And so hard it seems that he actually broke the skull of uh, of this child, um, this this toddler. Um, He was then put in jail by uh, the U.S. Air Force, a kind of military jail, for 12 months. Um, And when he got out, he was uh, discharged. None of that information, it seems, was uh, introduced to the database that uh, is supposed to flag uh, problem purchasers, if you like, when they go into gun stores uh, in the state to buy uh, long, long rifles, big firearms. And that did not happen. So there now is a lot of focus on how that did not, why that didn't happen. Um, And again, whether there could be any liability here on the U.S. Air Force, uh, because we now have a situation where a man who shouldn't have uh, had access to these arms actually did.
0: Because had that information been entered in the database, he wouldn't have legally been able to purchase the gun that he used in the attack.
1: He wouldn't, that's true. But there is another issue here, which is that a lot of guns are um, sold um, more informally, if you like. Through gun shows and um, through private sales, so there are no guarantees that he wouldn't have been able to get the gun in another way. Um, not all guns are sold over the counter in gun stores, so I think that's one of uh, one of the bigger, wider issues that's coming out of this. You know how easy it is anyway uh, to step overstep some of these loopholes that are there in terms of purchasing weapons like this.
0: Now, as I mentioned, Suzanne, you're in Sutherland Springs. Um, can you describe the town for us? What's it like?
1: Yes, um, I arrived here on Sunday night, and uh, I was struck with just how remote this place is. It's about thirty miles east of San Antonio, a, big, a, a city in southern Texas. But um, it's extremely rural. You may drive for for miles, and only see one house every mile or so. Um, quite rural, quite um, quite desolate. There are. It seems to be economically. There are a lot of trailer parks in the area, and a lot of kind of dollar thrift shops. Um, but also then some more um, more wealthy kind of sites. For example, Devon Kelly's own parents uh, appear to have lived in, in quite a, a big 28-acre a site, about 30 miles north um, of here, uh, but in the same general area. Uh, but this is a very, very small community. And to describe Sutherland Springs, it's not even a town. It's a, it's a crossroads. I mean, it's literally got the church, another church about uh, two quarters of a mile away, um, a post office, and two... Uh, two gas stations so it's very, very small so in fact a lot of the people who would have been at that um, service were not just from the immediate community but a lot of people would have gone to school etc. in bigger towns about eight miles away for example Floresville which I visited, which uh, has one of the medical centres where a lot of the bodies and victims went straight after the shooting.
0: So it it sounds like one of those areas where everybody would know everybody else, doesn't it? I mean, mean, people must be really in shock to have an an incident in which 26 people are shot dead.
1: Absolutely. Um, I was speaking to the lady who runs the uh, gas station across the road, um, and she was just very quietly and very respectfully but, but very, very upset about what happened. She said they're trying to cope and the The news was seeping out within a day of who had died. I was speaking to another uh, two people beside the post office, and, and one said to the other, "Oh, did you hear that the the guy who worked from the milk counter in the uh, supermarket in Floresville, him and his wife were killed?" And the other lady didn't seem to know him, but they were talking about it. Um, but that that would give you the sense of how everyone knows somebody who's affected. There was nobody from out of town who was uh, who was not affected in this in this shooting. Uh, So it's really, really a community in shock. It's a very religious community, uh, quite a conservative community, predominantly white community. Um, But they were, as we say, a lot of people and a lot of people from the one family, eight members of one family, for example, uh, were killed and and quite a few um, husbands and wives. So uh, a lot of, you know, it's concentrated across a lot of key families, I think, in this community from what we're learning.
0: And Suzanne, whenever we have a gun atrocity in in the U.S., um, debate immediately turns to American gun laws and how easy it is to purchase firearms um, in America. One of the first to enter the fray this time was the president, Donald Trump.
2: I think that uh, mental health is your problem here. This was a very, based on preliminary reports, very deranged individual, a lot of problems over a long period of time. We have a lot of mental health problems in our country, as do other countries. But this isn't a guns... Situation. I mean, we could go into it, but it's a little bit soon to go into it. But fortunately, somebody else had a gun that was shooting in the opposite direction. Otherwise, it would have been as bad as it was. It would have been much
0: worse. So here we have, Suzanne, Donald Trump, in essence, saying this crime had, had nothing to do with guns. It was a mental health issue. And it's a kind of depressingly familiar pattern, isn't it, where you have a gun massacre. You have calls mainly on the Democratic side of the political divide, asking for firearm sales to be restricted and then you have Republicans such as Donald Trump on this occasion saying no availability of guns is not the issue this this comes up, the debate is kind of um, it's framed in those terms again and again isn't it?
1: Yes and of course in this situation um, those who are in favour of gun ownership uh, have highlighted the fact that a local man Stephen Wilford took on this gunman with his own gun and then him and another gentleman chased uh, Devin Kelly through the countryside here Um, So there is an example, if you like, in this case where somebody took their own privately held guns and, as Donald Trump suggests, could have saved, he said, later hundreds of lives. So I think this has kind of given solace to those on the side of the debate who believe that the best way to deter uh, gun crime and to control gun crime is that responsible people... On the other side have guns which they can use then responsibly. So yes, you're right this whole debate now has reopened and we're only five weeks after the Las Vegas mass shooting, the biggest mass, mass shooting in American history uh, and and very little has been done on that. Um, there's been no move by Congress on the bump stocks. These were the devices that were attached to that weapon that was used by um, by the man in that, in that shooting and there's been nothing forthcoming from Congress on that the debate has really receded until now um, There are though um, and even people I've been speaking to here are wondering how did a man with this kind of background get hold on, of, this, of this rifle? And um, some of the details have come out about the, the weapon he used. Uh, they found 15 empty 30-round uh, magazines in the, in, in the outside the church um, and around the church. So it looks like he could have fired up to 450 rounds uh, during the rampage on Sunday. So it's a very, very dangerous weapon he was able to get hold of. So I think there is certain amount of debate about about um, about how about the, the background checks and how somebody with this kind of history can get hold of these weapons. But again, because the Air Force have come out and, and really take responsibility for this, I think that's where the debate is going to go now. It's going to be waiting for the review by the Air Force, and once they say they're going to rectify that, well, I think people even in this community would be happy that now the proper procedures will be followed in the future, and it may close the debate on this for the moment.
0: And even though Texas is a strong, known as a strong Republican state, not everybody there would agree with the, the president's position them, as you found out yourself. The 14-year-old little girl, yeah, I knew her. So she was one of them, the pastor's daughter. so yeah. What do you think about
1: the issue of gun ownership? Do you think that's a problem? I think it's a problem. I don't think guns should be permitted.
0: I don't think anybody should have the right to carry a gun. Even if you're ex-military, military, if you're not in the military, I don't think it's right for the United States to make it a law for anybody to carry a gun. For the simple fact being is you don't know what their mind frame is. You know, so I mean, you just never know. It's not safe. And and just to clarify, Suzanne, who who were you speaking to there in that particular clip?
1: I was speaking to a young African-American girl um, in the nearby town of Floresville, and she had explained to me that she knew uh, the pastor's daughter who was killed a 14-year-old, that she was a member of her own church uh, nearby, and they used to do things together with the First Baptist Church. Um, So she was, you know, very strong in her view. She believes, really, the whole question of gun ownership should be looked at. Um, But uh, as you say... I think the debate, as far as people will go here, is how did this particular man get hold of a gun? No one is questioning the right to gun ownership of anything. It's showing uh, the need for everyone to be armed so they can defend themselves if something like this happens. And even the Attorney General of Texas, controversially within hours of the attack, suggested that um, actually maybe parishioners should be armed in a church. And I heard that a lot from people saying, you know, is no place safe now, even church, even the House of God, do you have to arm yourself in here? Um, And Ted Cruz, the senator from the area, he came here uh, yesterday, and he spoke uh, about the attack, and he suggested that Devin Kelly himself had um, attended this church, and he spoke about how how can somebody do this who worships with his neighbors and his friends come back and and kill them in this way. So I think there's a real, with this very religious community, there's a real shock that this can happen in a church um, but I don't. I think her view there um, does represent maybe some of the younger people. She was a bit younger, so maybe there is a debate going on at that level in American society, maybe slightly more about the issue of gun ownership. But in the medium term, I don't think there's any hope of uh, of changing legislation either at the federal or state level in any significant way on this.
0: And if anything from what you're saying, it kind of sounds like um, when something like this happens, both sides become even more entrenched in their positions. Um, The the anti-gun lobby says this this demonstrates the need to make firearms less accessible, but those who are pro-gun say it actually demonstrates the need for everybody to have a gun so they can defend themselves.
1: I know, and in some ways it reflects the, the partisanship of American society at the moment, because during the Obama era, it was one of the issues that he really came out strong on, about gun restriction, particularly after the Sandy Hook massacre. And yet today, in the last few days, we've seen Donald Trump coming out absolutely on the other side, saying, no, he does not think it's anything to do with guns. There's no middle ground here. It's either you're one way or the other, it seems. And that's been reflected at the highest level by the the president. Uh, So I think Donald Trump wasted no time in giving his message on that. Uh, And with Republicans in control of Congress again, and a lot of Republicans getting a lot of funding and donations, people like Paul Ryan, people like John McCain, Um, get funding from the National Rifle Association and and different uh, gun rights groups. So I don't think there's any hope that anything significant could pass in Congress, particularly when Republicans control, basically, all levers of power in Washington at the moment.
0: Okay, It seems we're condemned to continue having this debate again and again. Suzanne Lynch, thank you. And now to Saudi Arabia, where at the weekend, the kingdom's young and dynamic crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, moved to tighten his grip on power by ordering the arrest of dozens of influential figures, including at least 11 members of the extended royal family, in, ostensibly, a crackdown on corruption. The Financial Times, in an editorial today, Tuesday, described the move as breathtaking. The New York Times said it was the most sweeping transformation in the kingdom's governance for more than eight decades. Writing in the Irish Times... Our Middle East analyst, Michael Johnson, said the Crown Prince's manoeuvre had shaken the kingdom to its foundations, and Michael is on the line to tell us more. Michael, to go back a step first, who is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and what were the circumstances in which he came to occupy this exalted position in the the Saudi hierarchy just a few months ago in June?
2: Uh, Well, the Crown Prince is uh, 32 years old. He is the favourite son of the king, King Salman who is the seventh monarch in the Saudi uh, dynasty. He has uh, been educated, the crown prince has been educated in Saudi Arabia itself and has limited experience with the international community. He also uh, had a very low profile before his father took office and appointed him defense minister in 2015. Uh, After that... Uh, the, the King Salman, skipped over two senior members of the family uh, who should have been uh, his successors to appoint his son uh, Depp, uh, crown prince. And um, in doing so, he angered a good many members of the family.
0: And the change was made in, in quite a ruthless fashion, wasn't it, Michael? Because uh, the Crown Prince's cousin, Mohammed bin Nayef, was—he was the Crown Prince. He was the designated successor, if you like—and he was pushed out in a quite a—it was a palace coup. Such, so it wasn't it, and happened, you know, in fairly dramatic and and fairly ruthless circumstances.
2: Well, that was the second palace coup. The first palace coup was against another um, half brother of the king who was removed uh, four months after he was appointed crown prince. He was the first crown prince. Then um, Mohammed uh, bin Nayef was, sec- was the deputy crown prince, who was then elevated. And then uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the son of the king, was appointed deputy crown prince, and then he was elevated. And so what you have here is essentially uh, two coups <laughs> by the king to get his son into a position where he can succeed him.
0: I, I suppose we should remind people, Michael, as well, just that the, the king, um, King Salman, who's the father of the current current prince, he's 81 now, but he's only been on the throne himself for, for um, a couple of years, isn't that right? He succeeded his brother. So um, when his brother died in 2015, he became the king at quite an old age, 79. So that, that sparked, I think, a kind of a, a flurry of activity because people, you know, it was obvious he was not going to be on the throne for very long himself.
2: Well, this is why when King Abdullah was uh, in his last months as king, he appointed uh, successors, which was quite unusual in the family. Usually they were elected later on. And so King Abdullah, who was the predecessor of uh, King Solomon, he appointed these two successors. And the idea was to keep the uh, principle of uh, um, sharing the rule of Saudi Arabia amongst different branches of the family. Now, what uh, King Salman has done, he has removed uh, this principle. He has violated this principle. And he has installed his son as the uh, crown prince and the heir apparent. And he has turned this uh, System which was installed by the founder of the dynasty, Abdulaziz ibn Saud, in the 30s, into a, he's turned this sort of consortium into a family affair, keeping it within his own uh, close family.
0: By appointing his own son as distinct from appointing a nephew or, or whatever. And uh, I'll come back to you in a moment, Michael, about the consequences of that. But let's just uh, a quick look first. Then at uh, This thing happened in June anyway the uh, the new Crown Prince, aged 32, limited experience, as you said. He had been Defence Minister. But since June and before last weekend, which we'll come to in a moment, what kind of measures has he implemented since June? Or what, um, I mean, he's, he, he's, he is seen in the West as a reformer, isn't he, at least on, in domestic terms. But how would you characterise those first few months that he has spent as Crown Prince?
2: Well, first of all, uh, he collected a whole lot of jobs, He became, he was appointed originally defense minister. Then he took over the economy. And then he took over foreign affairs and reform. And now he has taken over anti corruption. So he has gathered all the reins of power in his hands. And also uh, this weekend, this past weekend, he has essentially. Uh, made a coup in the second largest uh, military force in the kingdom, which is the National Guard, by firing its head, who was the son of the former king, and putting in his own man. So he essentially also controls both the army and the National Guard, which puts him in charge of 300,000 men.
0: Right. So he's accumulated all of this power. And then what has he done with that power? I mean, there was one headline grabbing move, which was the, in September, he announced the lifting of the ban on women driving in Saudi Arabia. But what, what other kind of measures has he um, introduced?
2: Well, the, one of the things he has said, he wants to return to moderate Islam. Now, this means both within the kingdom and in its export of Wahhabism, which is the ideology of the Saudi kingdom, which is not moderate. It is quite immoderate. It is exclusionist and Sunni, and it also uh, considers uh, Shias as um, heretics. And it also considers Sunnis who are not Wahhabis to be heretics. Saudi Arabia has exported this ideology for more than 50 years. Uh, stepping it up the past 30 years. And so he may actually, hopefully, curb some of the extremes of this ideology. As far as his actions on the international scene, actually they have been mainly confined to the region. He launched a dreadful war against the tribal elements in Yemen, which has killed thousands of Yemenis and wrecked the country. He has also uh, backed um, extremist insurgents in Syria and prolonged the war in that country. And he has blockaded Qatar, which it has also been doing the same thing in Syria, which Saudi Arabia was doing.
0: Yes. And but what I'm get, getting at here, Michael, and I want to move on to the, the events of the weekend in a moment, but just to just to clarify that the, the Saudi intervention in Yemen, um, because people might think, well, hold on, he's been crown prince since June. You know, he can't be blamed for that. But in actual fact, he was he, him, his influence was very much brought to bear in that intervention. Am I correct on that?
2: Yes, yes. It was the end of March 2015. His father had been in office from the end of uh, January, and he was definitely involved in launching that war. And he had the backing of the United Emirates and some other parties. But the major thing was it was his, his idea, his action, and it has not turned out the way he expected. He thought it would be a short war. Which the Saudis would win rather um, easily, and uh, then they would put their man back on the, their, back in the presidential office.
0: And so, Michael, then to come up then to the events of the weekend um, when you know he instigated a purge against a number of people at the very top of the Saudi hierarchy of power. I mean, just to mention too, there this al Prince Alwaleed bin Talal, who's a billionaire investor, one of the world's richest men. His investments have included the likes of Apple, Twitter, 21st Century Fox. He also um, detained the head of the National Guard, Prince Mita bin Abdullah and and many others. Um, The arrests were carried out by a new anti-corruption committee, of which he's the chair. But do you take those arrests at face value, Michael? Are they about corruption or are they about him consolidating power?
2: They're mainly about him consolidating power. I mean, corruption has been endemic in Saudi Arabia ever since the... Kingdom was founded. In fact, the founder of the kingdom, Abdulaziz, complained about it way back in the 30s and 40s. Um, and it is a way of uh, doing business in the kingdom. The uh, Saudi uh, people who are in positions of authority um, take commissions on uh, whatever kind of business they do, and they also rake off the state. When the state is building any kind of facilities, this is normal, and they consider that it their right to do so. And they, and many of the princes, are millionaires and billionaires, and that includes uh, King Salman as well. It doesn't; say, he is not excluded from this. And one must remember that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, one of his first things to do when he became crown prince, was to buy a yacht for half a billion dollars. That is when he imposed his austerity program on the country. The uh, More important uh, than the removal of um, Prince al-Walid bin Talal was the removal of the three sons of the former king, King Abdullah. Because these men were serious contenders for... Uh, the office of crown prince, and uh, the this is actually really a tribal action because they belong. Their mother, K- King Abdullah's wife, uh, the mother of these men, was a member of uh, the the tribe which fought against King uh, um, Abdulaziz bin Saud um, during the twenties. So you have tribal factions in competition mm. and you have this throughout the royal family.
0: And, and does he have the, the authority, Michael, to see to see this purge through then or, or might he have bitten off more than he can chew?
2: That's not clear. He may have the authority to see it through to a certain extent, but then he may run up against uh, resistance because, as I said, the whole of the Saudi establishment has been based on a corruption and uh, commissions and ripping off the state structures and state institutions. So, um, for instance, um, I know of uh, a situation where a prince got a contractor, in fact a contractor from Cyprus, to build a defense installation in the middle of the desert, on a piece of land that he had. Now, there was no uh, strategy in this. There was no security need for a defense installation on that particular plot. What he wanted was to get the money, um, which would be allocated to this, to get his commission. And then, of course, since it was a defense structure, then he would also need money to pay men to man it and arms to to provide them with security. So it was an enduring kind of piece of corruption. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of thing that happened. And it happened all over Saudi Arabia, and it was getting worse and worse. And billions and billions of dollars were lost in this. And the Saudi princes and the Saudi royal family were buying flats in California and London and Florida and investing in all kinds of enterprises. With money, which was essentially
0: state money, and so Michael, to come back down to something you mentioned earlier, I so said I'd return to it. Uh, I mean, um, Saudi Arabia is, for, you know, for all its um, for all one might think about its its human rights uh, um, record and so on, it has been a kind of stabilizing or seen by you know allies in the West as a kind of stabilizing uh, factor within the Middle East. Um, and you described earlier how how this balance of power has been delicately maintained, you know, for many decades between different factions in the House of Saud, you know, and the way the, the succession is organised and so on. And now it's all really been sort of torn up by the current king and by and by this crown prince. So I'm wondering, what do you think, um, uh, uh, what potential is there, there now for um, for this whole new approach to introduce, you know, instability within Saudi Arabia and, and then within the region beyond Saudi Arabia um, um, in addition to that?
2: Well, as far as within the royal family, I think he has destabilized things, but he will be able to crack down on anybody who tries to oppose him. So at least for the present time and a few years ahead, there will be some kind of stability, I think, within the royal family. I'm not certain, but I think so. He will, be, he will have to be very careful about putting these people on trial. Because show trials will look very bad in Saudi Arabia because you will have different clans in the family lining up behind their people. As far as on the regional and international side, he has also approached Russia and got Russia to agree to limit oil um, exports to raise the price of oil. I think that is for them, for Russia and for Saudi Arabia and for Iran
0: a very positive thing. OK, well, there's very much we can see at play here, Michael. And these people who've been detained are being held at the Ritz-Carton Hotel in, in Riyadh. It's described as the, the poshest prison in the world. But we'll see how things play out. And Michael Johnson, thanks very much for that analysis. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.